0: I think some of the stereotypes that people might have about Asians are also at play in
1: some of the ways that people talked about Ellen Powell. The words that I was hearing or reading, not a team player, driven, intelligent, but difficult to be with, these are the subjective evaluations that are generally applied to women. If we
2: do nothing, if it's the status quo, then yes, five years from now, it will be the same type of case and the same type of burden.
4: Hello, and welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. This is Craig Williams coming to you from Southern California. I write a blog called May It Please the Court.
5: And this is Bob Ambrosie coming to you from just outside of Boston, Massachusetts, where I write a blog called Law Sites and another blog called Media Law.
4: Bob, before we introduce today's topic, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Clio, an online practice software management program for lawyers at goclio.com.
5: Well, Craig, the case of uh, Ellen Powell versus Kleiner Perkins was decided last week. For anybody who hasn't heard at this point, it was certainly one of the most notable or most covered anyway, workplace gender equity cases uh, in recent times. It involved a, a high-level venture capital firm in Silicon Valley. And in it, the plaintiff, Ellen Powell, who is currently working as the interim CEO for Reddit, uh, sued defended Kleiner Perkins for uh, denial of promotions alleging they were due to gender discrimination and also that she was unlawfully terminated for gender discrimination and Ms. Powell sought 16
4: million dollars in compensatory damages in addition to punitive damages and during the pending case there was a motion in limine sought to eliminate punitive damage but i believe was granted Uh, So she was able to sue for punitive damages, but ultimately a jury of six men and six women decided against Ms. Powell on all of her claims. But media coverage of her dispute has reignited a national discussion of gender equality in employment.
5: Well, to help us break down this case and discuss some of the broader issues around gender equality in in various professional environments, we've got three guests today, uh, and let us introduce them, and then we'll go into a discussion of the issue First of all, I want to introduce Laurel Bellows. Uh, Laurel is the past president of the American Bar Association, also past president of the Chicago Bar Association. She's a founding principal of the Bellows Law Group, president of the International Women's Forum Chicago, and she serves on Minister Gordon Brown's Global Citizenship Commission to update the United Nations Declaration of Human Rights. She's also chair of the American Bar Association's Gender Equality Task Force, uh, although she is speaking today for herself, not for the American Bar Association in any way. So welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, Ms. Bellows.
1: Thank you. I'm thrilled to be here.
5: And
4: Bob, also joining us, we have Mr. Renwei Chung. He is a featured columnist and contributor to Above the Law, where he recently wrote an article titled The Curious Case of Ellen Powell and the Lesson We Can Learn from It. He is currently attending Southern Methodist University, Dedman School of Law and is interested in startups, entrepreneurship and innovative technologies. Welcome, Mr. Chung.
2: Thank you, Craig and Bob. It's uh, good to be here.
5: And last but not least, but we have uh, Professor Melissa Hart from the University of Colorado Law School, where she teaches courses in employment discrimination, legal ethics, constitutional law, judicial procedure, and judicial decision-making. Prior to that, she practiced law for several years in Washington, D.C., including as a trial attorney at the U.S. Department of Justice. She remains active in the legal community, regularly, regularly handling pro bono cases and serving on the Colorado Access to Justice Commission the Colorado Supreme Court's Judicial Ethics Advisory Committee, and Board of Continuing Judicial and Legal Education. And she is uh, director of the Byron White Center for the Study of American Constitutional Law. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, Professor Hart.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
5: Well, before
4: we get into the discussion of uh, Powell versus Kleiner Perkins, we want to uh, put you on the jury for a moment and take the first poll uh, to have you vote whether she should be um, was a victim of gender discrimination or not so just a simple yes or no and we'll go around first and then have uh, a discussion about that as we go on so uh, mr. Chung let's start with you
2: I, I do I-, I believe she was
4: okay and Laurel yes
2: gender
1: discrimination and, uh, and I agree yes. Well, the perspective that I bring to you is a product of the work that I do. i I, I represent men and women at senior executive levels um, who are in transition. They're either looking for a job, you know are separating out of a job or are negotiating an employment contract. The words that I heard, of course, we can't substitute our judgment for a journey, a jury, because they heard the facts, and I'm a big believer in the jury system. On the other hand, the words that I was hearing or reading, um, not a team player, driven, intelligent, but difficult to be with. These are the subjective evaluations that are generally applied to women in terms of a either blatant bias or implicit bias, people that we don't really care for but nonetheless are doing well. So when we talk about performance evaluations that are objective, we're saying that you have a a very specific revenue generation goal and you're not complying with it, and the others who are working with you, your peers, are. So I'm not reading about a very specific difference in revenue generation. I'm not reading about her inability to perform. I'm really reading mostly about subjective determinations of whether she fit in. And that's that's the way all of the discrimination cases started initially many, many years ago in the securities industry. We just don't think a woman can do this. We We think she's too aggressive. When she's not aggressive enough, she's too weak. When she's not doing it our way, then she's not doing it properly. So that's the kind of Immediate reflex sense I have of what I'm absorbing from just what I read, because of course I wasn't sitting on the jury.
5: Great, Well, Melissa Hart. How about you? This, this, what led you to, <laughs> to say yes to that question?
0: Well, I, I think Ms. Bellows put it extremely well. When you when you hear the kinds of subjective evaluations that constituted uh, the poor performance evaluations that Ellen Powell received, um, you just have to have to stop and recognize that these kinds of subjective systems of evaluation are rife with the potential for and the reality of discrimination against women um, and, frankly, against minorities. And I think some of the stereotypes that people might have about um, about Asians are also at play in some of the ways that people talked about Ellen Powell. So it seemed to me that there's a lot there that demonstrates the kind of stereotyping that women face in these industries, and when you, particularly when you read the descriptions uh, that were given to her male colleagues who were where the same kinds of qualities were were described in very complementary terms um, in terms of aggressiveness versus go getter kinds of things so uh, that really is what uh, what concerns me when i when I read about it, and as miss Bella said we weren't we weren't there, but the accounts certainly Suggest that that problem, which exists in lots of other industries
4: as well. Isn't Kleiner Perkins' defense here, the situation that she was a poor performer, isn't that a little bit bolstered by the uh, Fortune 2012 article, I believe, that identified that Ms. Powell had uh, degrees in engineering and law and an MBA, but when she went to work for Kleiner Perkins, she was assigned to John Doerr, who was uh, in different industries. And as a consequence, uh, Ellen Powell's engineering and law backgrounds were out of place and not being used. And that was really what contributed to her poor performance and justified Kleiner Perkins uh, firing her. What's your thought about that issue?
1: This is Laurel. Again, we're not there. So we don't know whether when they say poor performance, we don't know precisely what they're talking about. And she could very well have been a poor performer, but she would have to be poor performer measured objectively against her male peers. That's number one. Number two is when you're talking about the VC business or private equity business, you're talking about a lot of common sense, business sense, street sense. It's not. In fact, a law degree could serve her very, very well in doing that because she understands the deals she has to put together and she understands the details that have to be covered in order to put together or sell a deal. And she understands what what legal disclosures are and certainly is able to understand a regulated business. So I don't I don't. By that part, I cannot tell you, having not sat on the jury, whether or not she was performing equivalent to the, her male peers, or whether she was not given an opportunity to to grow as her uh, and develop skills, which is another question that you know remains unanswered for me. That sometimes women go into difficult situations, but they're able you know to be supported by the people who hire them, and their skills are developed. Uh, so if she didn't have the skills, then they shouldn't have hired her. If she did have the skills, then they should have assisted to develop her in the same way the men did. If she wasn't a revenue producer to the same level, then they have a right to fire her. But they shouldn't be using the kind of language that we're talking about now, uh, where it's, as Professor Hart said, complimentary to the guys and disparaging to women.
5: Some of the uh, reports I've read about this case since the verdict has come back has said that although this was a loss for Ellen Pau, it was nonetheless a, a win for raising awareness about the issue of gender bias in the workplace Runway, what what do you think about that? Do do, do you think that that uh, this helped raise awareness and and will lead to positive changes going forward?
2: I do. I'm I'm very happy with the publicity of the case. Uh, again, I respect the ju- uh, judicial process as well. I think under the current law and definition of discrimination, I can understand the verdict. Uh, it's worth noting. In reality, there was certainly gender discrimination under current laws. Um, you know, it's arguable, but I think. at at best that this case and the public coverage of it uh, brings these issues into mainstream consciousness. And I think that's really what we can take away from that. I'd also
1: like to add, first of all, I totally agree with Renway. I'm I'm delighted. I'm sorry that Ellen Powell lost. Um, And if she, you know, if the jury made a good decision based on the facts, that's fine. As I say, I'm a believer in our jury system. Uh, But the idea that we are now having high profile and Frequent conversations on this issue, which has gone to sleep basically to the American public, uh, is f- tremendously important. Gender discrimination exists, barriers persist. And uh, young people growing up who have been educated in um, maybe a 50-50 college environment, a law school environment, MBA, medicine, have to understand that the barriers still persist. Otherwise, they come out and they enter their professions, and then they they experience some form of discrimination, which might be not as blatant as it it was in the past, and they don't recognize it, and they blame themselves for not performing well. And that is a serious concern and lose confidence for the future. So I'm, I'm delighted this is happening.
5: And is that because she took the case to trial? I mean, it, it, a lot of these cases never make it there; they they settle out of court. Uh, this one, I think, as I recall, had an opportunity to settle out of court, but but she wanted to to uh, push forward with this and have a full trial on it. Uh, and that's, I think, part of what makes this case so unusual—not just the the fact that it did involve some high big names in Silicon Valley, but the that that so much of this was laid out for the public to hear and see. I think
0: that's exactly right. This is. Professor Hart, if you look at uh, civil cases in the United States, something less than 3% of them ever go to trial, and with employment discrimination cases, it's even lower. Um, They they just don't make it to trial, sometimes because of settlement, sometimes, as was the case here, um, Kleiner Perkins tried to keep it out of court by arguing that she had to arbitrate, and that's increasingly common in employment claims because of the, Supreme Court's current jurisprudence on on arbitration. So we rarely have a chance to have this kind of public airing of these issues. And that really, I think, is so important. And it's so unfortunate that we've lost that um, that ability to have these cases get out into the public eye for, for conversation.
4: Isn't this Ellen Powell's second or third gender discrimination lawsuit? And I believe that her husband, uh, Buddy Fletcher, Uh, has filed several uh, gender discrimination lawsuits himself. So what kind of role does this type of this pattern uh, indicate to you as the potential for um, just simply this problem? Can this problem even be solved if she's suing as much as she's suing? Or is there a question about the credence of what she's suing for, especially now that Kleiner Perkins has been vindicated?
1: Well, I don't know. They've been vindicated, right? The jury just found them not guilty in this case, all right. I think I think there was enough testimony to indicate that there was a problem with the environment and there were some and there was some disparate treatment. But at night, it may not have been the reason for their termination of of POW, all right. But what's very interesting here is when you talk about settlement, when it doesn't go to trial, as Professor Hart says, one of the reasons it doesn't go to trial is if. if if the claims are accurate, and the company is concerned about either their reputation or their client base, or they really, you know, realize they have done wrong, they're going to throw a lot of money on the table, and the plaintiff is not going to walk away from that money simply to be as courageous as Ellen Powell was in bringing the case. For other cases, I can't speak to it, it. You know, if it came before the jury, it could certainly have affected her credibility. And what her husband does for himself is a whole different matter, as far as I'm concerned. But the issue is we don't get to see the facts of these cases, both because they are frequently arbitrated, particularly in the securities industry, uh, frequently arbitrated, which is a private venue. And it's one of the reasons why there are arbitration clauses in, in most employment contracts in the securities industry and in VC and in private equity as well. So this is a good conversation to have publicly to women who are thinking about signing a contract that has a dispute resolution provision that says arbitration. If they have a choice, they should preserve their right to a jury trial.
4: Before we move on to our next segment, we're going to take a quick break to hear a message from our sponsor. But when we return, we're going to talk more about gender equality in the legal profession.
0: Hi, my name is Kate Kenny from Legal Talk Network, and I'm joined by Jack Newton, president of CLEO. Jack takes a look at the process of moving to the cloud. Now how long does it take to move to the cloud, and is it a difficult process?
1: No, with most cloud computing providers, moving your data into the cloud is something that takes just minutes, not hours or days to do. You can get signed up and running with most services in just a few minutes. That's goclio.com.
4: And welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer. I'm Craig Williams, and with Bob and I today is Mr. Renway Chung, Miss Laurel Bellows, and Professor Melissa Hart. We were talking about the Powell versus Kleiner Perkins case, but I'd like to talk about gender equality within the, perhaps the not only the legal profession, but also within uh, some of the other industries, uh, especially here in Southern California. There have been some notable uh, gender discrimination cases arising out of the uh, creative sessions of writers of uh, comedy shows where uh, discrimination and a whole host of issues come up that uh, courts have ruled, well, that's just part of the creative process and that's the way the TV shows get written, so you can't interfere with that. How does this, uh, the Ellen Powell case, will that make any change to these types of cases or are we experiencing this issue uh, across uh, the United States and across the professions?
1: I think I need to answer your question a little differently. So one, again, barriers to women's equality exist. Women are not paid equally. I mean, we have the facts. And women are not paid equally in the in the legal profession. I think the National Association of Women Lawyers' recent study indicates that women equity partners are earning 89 cents on the dollar for against male equity partners. And that's a chunk of money when you're talking about equity partner to equity partner over the working years until retirement. You're probably talking about millions of dollars. So that's a fact uh, that we need to consider but the other issue here which is in pow but it's in almost every case is if you complain about discrimination to your employer regardless of the rules in your in your employee handbook there, it is quite likely that at some time in the near future, generally within a year, you're going to be retaliated against. Nobody wants to keep an employee who's complaining about discrimination, much as we'd like to believe that the world, you know, recognize it and then that most corporations would very, be very willing to investigate accurately and, um, and you would come out ahead as having brought a bad act to the attention of your employer. That's not the way that it works. And I think the POW case and I think the fact that we're not seeing a lot of um, cases in law all right or anywhere uh, publicly uh, on gender discrimination is you know a function of the reality of the way we handle discrimination
5: i couldn't help in in reading about this case to to think about what it is like for women professionals in large law firms and I think a lot of people might have not even been aware of the fact that Ellen Power herself was a was a lawyer who had worked. Uh, in, in a large law firm earlier in her career. But uh, one of the things that struck me was uh, the, at Kleiner Perkins, was kind of the lack of any objective criteria by which uh, promotions to partner were made. And it, it seemed to have a lot of parallels to what happens in law firms. And, uh, you know, to the extent you might say that Kleiner Perkins, Oneness, or, or as Craig said earlier, was vindicated. I, I, you know, I wonder what that says about gender bias in law firms, uh, b- because there's still that that lack of objective criteria for for promoting uh, associates in, into partnerships, um, and, and how that, what that means for for women in professional law firms. Does this does this give us any any guidance there? Does this give us any insights on what happens there?
1: Well, here I can speak on behalf of the American Bar Association. So the, you know, the um, ABA's Commission on Women in the Profession and the ABA's Gender Equity Task Force have done some very specific work here. So one on compensation, we've recently published um, information that's publicly available. and it is called Closing the Gap, and it's Closing the Compensation Gap, and it's directed to women who are in large law firms, um, all law firms, but particularly women in large law firms, talking to the law firms themselves about how to close the gap that may be an unintentional gap, the need for more transparency, so it shouldn't be um, compensation, determination shouldn't be so behind or opaque, and the things that women should learn about how to negotiate their compensation within a law firm framework. And then lastly, we have a program running right now called Power the Purse, where we're asking general counsel to take a more active role uh, with their preferred provider managing partners to talk about their expectations of gender equity, racial and gender equity within law firms. And one of the ways of doing that is to ask a simple question, how many women are on the compensation committee of the law firm that's providing significant services to a corporation. So uh, that's one of the things we're asking general counsel around the country to begin asking just how many women are on the compensation committee? Because we know if there are women there, there's going to be a a more open conversation and certainly more than one woman.
4: Professor Hart, as a trial lawyer, I just have to make the observation that here is a woman who is extremely successful. Her earnings would be in the stratosphere compared to any of the jury members that are going to sit on her jury despite the fact of where the jury was. Is there any part of this verdict that relates to the fact that the woman's essential financial peers are not on that jury and can't be on that jury?
0: That's a great question. I, and I, th- I think one of the things that's so complicated about talking about the jury's verdict is that the jury is the one group of people in the country that didn't have access to the way this was being covered in the media while while they were hearing the evidence and deliberating. Um, and I think one of the things that is most interesting about what's been covered, it, how it's been covered in the media and how Kleiner Perkins talked about it in court is that there's, there's this sense of how outrageous it is that she was asking for $16 million. That just sounds like such an, a huge amount of money, and yet pretty commonplace as a, as an amount of compensatory damages for someone in that kind of an industry. And I think that's, that must have been hard for um, some jurors to even comprehend. And it may make her seem or may have made her seem uh, rapacious is maybe not quite the right word, but um, greedy Greedy. uh, to them. Greedy. I think, and and that's a, I think that's a concern, especially when you look at the things that the jurors have said, Afterwards, about not finding her to be likable, Um, I think, again, that they must have felt some distance from her in part because of that as well.
4: Well, she's known as a perfectionist and as someone who was, you know, not one of the good old boys would make sure that she dotted every I and crossed every T before she went to bed. Just to quote that Fortune article I referenced earlier, Um, that doesn't make people likable.
1: It makes people quite competent and trustworthy. That's number one. And and number two, you say somebody is uh, asks for an increase or expects the same compensation her peers are getting, and I'm not talking about POW now. I'm talking about generally women and the use of the word greedy or, or self-indulgent or self-promoting, as opposed to the guy who's trying to earn money to raise his family, you know, is successful because he's making a lot of money as part opposed to greedy and is making a case for increased compensation based on his value to a corporation as opposed to self-promoting. These are the different kinds of words that are indicative of the, of the implicit and blatant bias that exists, particularly in a high-profile business like this. If a man was earning $16 million a year, as many in Wall Street are, that actually is a indicative of success to most. If the woman is earning $16 million, it might be indicative of success, but the jury starts to wonder, ooh, that's a lot of money. Does she deserve that kind of money? Is, is you know? Is that not a greedy request as opposed to, well, that's what the guys make.
5: Renway, you've, you've written about this case at Above the Law, but you, you come at this from a, a different perspective for probably any of us on, on this call because you're uh, you're still in law school and, and you're looking ahead to a career. I, I wonder from that perspective, what what are you and your peers seeing in this case as, as it might pertain to you going into the law?
2: That's a great question. I, again, I think it's, you know, arguable. if. Gender discrimination was a substantial motivating factor uh, for some of these decisions. But I think in reality, it's indisputable uh, that the case was pregnant with gender bias. Uh, For me and some of my peers, we're just thinking, what would we have done if we were voting? And uh, at the end of the day, I think we would have decided um, in the affirmative for, for 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 a number of reasons. But, again, looking forward, you know, I think if this case was done five years from now, it it probably would have went the other way. And interesting from my perspective, and I agree with most of
1: everything that Renly has indicated, and again with the caveat that we can't second guess the kinds of evidence that was there, the negative side of what Kleiner was, was bringing forward, we're not emphasizing at all here. But. I don't know that from five years from now it would be different, really, and that's the concern that I bring when I when I advocate for racial and and gender equality. And that's that women and people of color have been out practicing law, not in such large quantity for people of color, but they've been out practicing law, recognized as competent attorneys for years now. Women, since 1975 and Title IX, um, have been out as a third of law school classes since 1975. So there is actually no excuse at all to have a statistic, and I saw that um, my statistics differ a little bit from some of the the catalysts at 19% of equity partners, but uh, I'm seeing 17 to 18% of equity partners are women. Uh, after all that time, there is absolutely no excuse not to have 30% women equity partners as an example, in, because the top 200, the 200 largest firms are the only ones that we can really gather statistics from, but that and, and the inequity of pay. And a world all right, where we're talking about 79, 77 cents on the dollar for white women, African-American women in the 60s, Latinas, even less than that. All right, so when you get, I joked earlier about celebrating my birthday on equal payday, all right, equal payday is the day that women have to work until to make, you know, so it's April 9th, is my birthday? Then you know, women would have to work until April nine of the following year to make the same that women, that men have earned the, the previous December thirty one. That's what equal pay day is. So when we come up with equal pay day and and celebrate it, so to speak, it's not a celebration. It's the indicative <laughs> that the barriers persist
2: and things are not changing with time. I think we're at the forefront of change in our social norms, and, and I'm hoping the law will mature to realize this. I guess when I say in five years that it, it might go the other way. I hope it's because of cases like this. And, you know, even women's suffrage cases, they lost that first. And it was only over time that we advanced, um, that we matured, that we realized, uh, you know, the progress of the human mind advanced to change the laws and institutions that we're going through. But I, I certainly understand what you're saying is if we do nothing, if it's the status quo, then yes, five years from now, it will be the same type of case and the same type of verdict.
4: Absolutely. Well, it looks like we've just about reached the end of our program, so we'd like to invite our guests at this point to share their final thoughts and their contact information, so that our listeners can reach out and get in touch with you if they would like to. Uh, and as you wrap up your final thought, the thing that we'd like to ask you is, what's the takeaway from this case? We'll start with you, Professor Hart.
0: Thanks so much. Uh, so I think, I guess, I think the takeaway has to be that this is a conversation that we've got to continue. That. Um, Ellen Powell may have lost, but we've got to turn this into a victory for women and for workplaces by um, focusing attention on the things that Kleiner Perkins could have done better. Because they won this case did not, I think, mean they're vindicated. We still can look at what happened there and say, here are some specific, obvious things that they could have done differently. They could have used less subjective evaluation. They could have required people to justify their decisions in more concrete and objective terms. Um, They could have offered the kind of guidance and mentoring that uh, I suspect they didn't. You pointed out that Ellen Powell got placed with a partner who didn't do the things that she had a background in, engineering and law. Why not? Why wasn't she set up from the beginning to succeed um, in the best and most productive way possible? So I think that's we can ask those questions not about Kleiner Perkins alone, not about venture capital alone, but about all of the industries, um, including, of course, law, where women are still not being given the same kinds of opportunities that men are. And my contact information is uh,
1: melissa.hart at colorado.edu. Great. And thank you, Ms. Bellows. Professor Hart and I agree on every single word. I would uh, reiterate (laughs) the fact that barriers persist, that women and men, it's going to take both of us uh, to advocate for a an um, internal and external change, to recognize that we all have implicit bias and um, and blatant bias is rare, but the barriers do persist and time and the increase in numbers of women and people of color in the professions, increase in numbers is not going to have anything to do with eradicating um, bias. That's first, and second, a strong voice, a loss of patience. It is. It is time for us to understand that we have to take very specific steps. Simply writing out best practices in an employee manual is not sufficient anymore. There needs to be a, an objective evaluation of and an expectation that men and women are adhering to best practice policies to eradicate bias in both our profession, um, the legal profession, and, you know, throughout the working world. And my contact information, lbellows at bellowslaw.com.
4: Thank you.
2: And Mr. Chung? And I agree with uh, both Professor Hart and Miss Bellows. Uh, again, I think law is an art and science, and even Supreme Court cases in the past have been wrong. Um, so I don't expect juries to be 100% right. Um, But I think the big takeaway is there needs to be objective measures. A lot of people use the excuse, well, how do you be objective when someone has the relationships or brings in certain clientele? Well, that's easy. You can see how it affects the bottom line. So I don't think it's that hard to be objective, but I think it's difficult to commit to being objective. And and, and lastly, I think gender discrimination is pervasive in the STEM field and in, in, in law. And I think it's something we do need to address. And I'm very happy that uh, I think uh, Ms. Bellows says we need to be impatient. The time is now. I certainly agree with that. I, I think we have, you know, too many people talk about rights and focus on rights. We need to focus on our responsibility, our responsibilities to the profession and our responsibilities to society in general. Uh, and you can reach me on uh, above the Law.
5: Well, thanks a lot to all of our guests for joining us today. Uh, we've been talking with Laurel Bellows of the Bellows Law Group, Melissa Hart of the University of Colorado Law School, and Renway Chung, who's a columnist for Above the Law, and a law student as well. So thanks thanks to all of you for taking the time to be with us today.
1: Thank you for having us. Thank you. Thank
5: you. And that brings us to the end of the show. And to all our listeners, thanks for listening. Join us next time for another great legal topic. When you think legal, think lawyer to lawyer.
3: Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer, produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Join J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi for their next podcast, covering the latest legal topic. Subscribe to the RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes.